MHV Voice, connecting people and sharing ideas. This is the second part of our advanced mitigation series, the discussion about what goes beyond good management practice for farmers. I'm again joined by Dr. Lee Burberry, who's a Dairy NZ scientist, Steve Vex, a Dairy NZ advisor, and Mark Everest, an independent farm systems advisor. In the first episode, advanced mitigation was described as being the process of actively reducing nutrient losses by applying critical thinking and understanding the why for our specific farm about being more responsive to our biophysical systems and working with the knowledge that we have to improve our farming practices and the corresponding environmental outcomes. So this episode focuses on nutrient management and edge of field mitigations like wetlands and bioreactors. At Good Management Practice, or GMP, nutrient management would include ensuring you've got fur application records, uh, that you've got soil tests and that fert's applied in the right places at the right times. So, for example, you have your buffers to waterways. It would also include ensuring that how the fert is spread, um, however you're spreading your fert, that it's calibrated and certified. So the first question um, for today is, what does moving beyond GMP for nutrient management look like? Mel, I wonder if I could just um, uh, step, take a step back with answering that question first. And I think, um, and this probably is, comes from a little bit of a dairy perspective, um, but the way I see with mitigations in, so a dairy system, um, there's, there's, a, there's three ways in which you can reduce in losses. First thing, obviously, is reduce your in inputs, and this is quite high level. So this is reduced yep. in fertiliser, reduced in port of feed, those kind of things. Um, supporting the retention of in within the system, so increased plant uptake and mobilisation in the soil, organic matter, um, excretion, say, in and dung as opposed to urine um, for slower transformation, um, and then mitigations that reduce in loss by increasing the amount of in out the farm gates, that's such as um, milk, meat, um, or uh, feed that's sold off that platform. So I kind of look at it from that perspective. And within that, within those aspects, there's a whole lot of other mitigations that can be used, and and they fit into different parts of the end cycle um, in, in terms of what's being targeted to try and reduce that end. So multiple things and I don't want to steal the, the limelight here but you know um, low-end feeds diverse diverse pastures um, reduced stocking rate uh, increasing pre-graze cover length potentially uh, technically applying in fertilizer in spring diverse swords plantain um, and then obviously you know from an expense point of view um, infrastructure you know if it's actually getting cows physically off the soil then you know putting a shed in or some sort of standing off area standoff area or something like that might also assist so um, I don't want to hog this, so I'm going to pass this on to the others. <laughs> it was pretty broad. That was impressive, Steve. <laughs> what would you like to add, Mark? Nothing to that, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. <laughs> Lee? Uh, nothing other than included in that end loss calculation would be the leaching. And so... I wonder if it's worthwhile because that was that was pretty broad, Steve. I wonder if it's worthwhile kind of digging into um, some of the more specific parts of that because you talked about plantain, um, and one of the things that I hear most regularly about plantain, or one of the complaints I hear about plantain, is its persistence um, or the weed control with it. You know, what's what? Um, how do you how's that best managed? 
Yeah, look, I think um, there is a bit of a common misconception out there um, with plantain. I mean, we, we need to realise that plantain is a short-lived perennial herb. Um, it, it, it's biologically, uh, I guess, bred to persist around three years. So, and it reaches a sort of a peak abundance between 18 and 24 months, and then will decline after that. So, it's not going to last forever. Um, so, the answer to that is, is regular, I guess, um, uh, potentially broadcasting of seed with fertilizer onto, onto the paddocks to try and keep it within the sward. Um, it, it's yeah, it's it's not a not one of these uh, plants that likes to hang around for a long time. So. It's kind of a case of just making sure it's topped up regularly. So um, I think the other thing is as well that uh, where people have tried to incorporate plantain, they haven't seen effects straight away. Um, it normally takes, you know, somewhere between six to 12 months for it actually to become well established within the sward. So I guess my, my point there is if you don't see it straight away, don't give up. Certainly, I suppose the other aspect you touched on was around um you know, managing dock within plantain. So uh, there is now a product dictate, which has a label claim for spraying dock in, in pastures containing plantain that's not going to affect the plantain as, as other products might do. So I think it's having a plan. What What is your plan at a farm level? You know, how are you going to incorporate uh, plantain? In the, um, and then how are you going to try and maintain it in your pasture? And then how are you going to manage with weeds on the farm? With the um, Italian ryeglark grasses and other kind of winter active species, how would they be incorporated into a system and um, the different heading dates being managed? Mark, did you want to attack that one? I can do. Um, everybody's got a different preference um, for how we manage this sort of stuff. I don't believe there's a one-size-fits-all. Um, I like the idea of mixing the likes of an Italian in with a perennial ryegrass when we're establishing a new pasture. Um, and it sounds really good and it's functional from an environmental perspective, but and some farmers can manage that really well. Um, others battle with the idea that they're going to have that one pasture going to seed for about four months of the year between the Italian trying to have several goes at it and the perennial trying to have several goes at it. Yeah. Um, they've got to, to manage the feed quality, um, i.e. keeping that seed head down. The Italian, because it's so much more aggressive, really prefers to be grazed more frequently and the perennial has a preference for grazing less frequently. Like I say, if someone can manage that, that's fine. Um, I have a personal preference of having parts of the farm having Italian in them out of out of the regrassing program and then coming in and over-sowing them once they get a little bit tired after two or three years. Um, yeah, we've still got to manage that Italian, but remember that a true Italian is only designed to as is plantain, to live for about three years. And once that point starts to drop off, um, we can pick up the perenniality component. It's a bit easier to manage. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that that, that makes that makes sense. Um, one of the other things you talked about, Steve, in your, your broad kind of overview at the start was some low-protein supplements, um, low-protein feed. Well, you know, what, what are you talking about there? I'm just kind of thinking about maize uh, just off the top of my head. Um, and obviously we've got, you know, a surplus of protein in the diet with with spring pastures. Um, and we, we occasionally see that actually, you know, in autumn as well when, you know, pasture quality improves. Um, so kind of, I guess, understanding what what you're feeding your, your, your animals, your cows in particular, um, what's going into their diet. Is it high protein? Is it possible that we could put something else into the system to try and reduce the amount of protein going into the animal and the potential loss from the animal onto soil and I'm just kind of thinking about uh, late lactation for example going into autumn you know if, if there is a higher inload from surplus protein coming out as urine onto paddocks 
Um, not ideal going into sort of the, the winter months where there will be likely to be, or I should say likely to be, soil drainage events, which is obviously taking that nitrate down through the soil profile and into groundwater, which can have an impact. Um, so I think being strategic around what you feed and when you feed. Um, the other one I'm kind of thinking too is beet. Um, beet has low, lower protein. Um, that can be really, really good on the shoulders of season, particularly late lactation, um, and getting animals transitioned onto beet. Um, it's obviously got a, a lower protein content, which reduces the risk at that autumn period. So I think um, it's just thinking about the picture from an animal feed perspective, but also from an environmental perspective as well, and understanding what 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 feeds are made up of what components of protein, uh, fat, and um, and carbohydrates, and then trying to match it to suit to try and reduce that overall uh, peak peakiness of protein in the diet. Yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. And I think when we've been talking about the the um, nitrogen um, leaching management here, we've 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 had quite a, a focus on on dairy. Is there anything, Mark, that you would like to add around the application of of fertilizer from a cropping perspective that we could be doing differently? It's all very much the same. It honestly doesn't matter whether you're a dairy farmer or whether you're a grazing operator or whether a sheep bay farmer or an arable farmer, the principles are all the same. There's just some more applicability of different techniques to uh, the different farms. The soil moisture monitoring is applicable to both for different reasons um, and, and the advanced management of irrigation. From a nutrient application perspective, um, again, it doesn't change a lot, I don't think. And on an arable farm, we probably spend more time discussing fertiliser because it's the main driver of input, whereas the feed's the main driver of input on a livestock farm. Um, and so understanding what's sitting there in the background from a from a base fertility perspective and correcting deficiencies and not over-applying where we've got adequate soil fertility is absolutely necessary. If we, We're always limited by the most limiting nutrient. So if we're trundling around aiming for uh, let's say a 14, 15 tonne crop of wheat and applying nitrogen accordingly, if we haven't got enough phosphorus, sulfur, potassium, calcium, magnesium, zinc, whatever else we're looking for in the soil, we're not going to get there. And so we end up with inefficiency. And that's exactly the same with pasture. We're not going to get 16 tonnes of pasture growth when we haven't got an adequate pH or we haven't got enough phosphorus, or sulfur, magnesium, etc. sitting in the soil. So understanding the variation within the paddock is something that arable farmers can do more so than livestock farmers. Obviously, with livestock, we have a tendency to move nutrient from the far end to the laneway end of a paddock. Um, it's yeah. very notable in dairy systems, and it's becoming increasingly notable in um, other livestock systems as we're moving to a more rotational grazing style system from a traditional stock sheep program. Um, and having more laneways on farms, whereas we used to be um, paddock to paddock rather than paddock to lane to paddock. And so on dairy farm, of course, we can, or sorry, a pasture-based farm, we can test the front, rear and um, centre of the paddock separately, see if there's a nutrient difference. If there is a difference, then we can treat them differently. Um, so into paddock uh, management rather than intra-paddock management. Um, and we can do the same with the arable farms, but we've got a few more tools in arable farms to think about where we want to look to start with. Um, if we're fitted or if the machinery is fitted with yield um, monitoring gear, we can start identifying where the most productive and least productive paddock parts of the paddock are and then take some action to go and investigate why now 
I can't tell you sitting here today what the answer to that will be. It will be many and varied. It's highly likely to be partly to do with water, partly to do with soil type, and partly to do with nutrients. Which one of those um, we need to look at and then act accordingly. Um, assuming all of that is lined up, um, variable rate application is something that uh, can be a really effective way of minimising the amount of free nitrogen sitting in that soil. Um, so reducing the inputs, if you like, relative to that yield going out the gate. Um, but that requires the right application gear to do it. Some applicators can do it, some can't. Um, uh, also want to look at um, building rotation to, to utilise free pool nitrogens in the soil, running depletive crops after those that fix nitrogen into the soil and extracting that as best we can. Um, so it's the likes of applying a cereal or a maize silage following a pea or a uh, clovis pearl product, um, and minimising our fallow periods uh, so that, again, if we've got free nitrogen sitting in the soil, we've got something growing on top, we've minimised the risk of drainage because the plant is actively picking up nutrient and water, and if we minimise the risk of drainage, we minimise the risk of leaching. We need to be going back to the drawing board and understanding um, what the crop needs are. There's, uh, I suppose now, a history of um, recipe farming. Um, so apply a drilling fit and apply two or three side dressings and call it a win, and that won't matter whether we're planting for a 1.6 tonne of grass seed or a three tonne crop of grass seed. Um, need to be making some more informed decisions around what needs to be applied to achieve target yield. And so that's working really closely. Um, if you know it yourself, then that's all good. Uh, and if you need some support around that, seeking that source from that agronomist or that fertiliser representative to support working out what's going to go out and what's therefore needed to be put in at what critical times to achieve that target yield, variably applying it if we can. Um, outside of that, coming out of winter, using a lot more um, nitrogen or understanding the status of the nitrogen as we go through, particularly out of winter, and that could be via either leaf testing or soil testing. Now, the leaf will tell us a pretty good story of what the plant's got in it, but it doesn't necessarily tell us uh, what's coming. And so testing that soil before we're planting crops to have a, a bit more of an informed plan around what we're going to use throughout the crop season can be a really effective way of minimising what we need to bring in. Because if we assume that we've got 20 kilos of free nitrogen in the pool in the spring and we apply accordingly, or again, say that 14 tonne wheat crop, um, we will be correct if there's 20, but if we have 100 kilos of free nitrogen sitting in that soil, readily available nitrogen sitting in that soil, and we get still go and apply um, our target application for our 14 tonne crop, theoretically, we're going to come up uh, 80 kilos extra leaching or freely available in the soil at risk of leaching um, if we haven't accounted for that up front in excess of the 20 base we started on. So running running that full sweet mill, I suppose, um, understanding the soil nitrogen status, the plant status, being realistic about the target yield um, and applying accordingly at the right time to optimise the use of the nutrients. That um, that sounds like really solid advice. So so if you were going to look for, because there's, there's a lot of things that people could be doing, what's, what's the best value for money um, options 
to reduce nitrogen loss? Look, maybe if I can answer that, Mel. Um, I mean, there's a suite of things that farmers can do to reduce in loss, right? Um, and, I, and I think I was just, just listening to, to Mark before, and, and it kind of reflects with me or resonates with me the need to actually understand your farm production system, which most farmers have an absolute great idea about, but it's actually understanding that from an environmental perspective. You know, what's happening when at what certain times of the year? When are my risky periods within that year for, say, losing nitrogen? And what can I do about it? What are the tools I've got available in my toolbox to be able to try and reduce risk and things like that? So I think that's that's the first key thing that needs to happen. Um, the other thing is I was going to point out is that in terms of those options, it's really important um, to have... I believe, in my mind, it's sort of multiple options or multiple tools to be able to reduce end loss rather than just a one-off. Um, but to answer your question, um, in terms of if there was one thing I would reach for on the shelf, it would probably be plantain. Um, it's cost-effective. It, it has multiple uh, ways of reducing end loss uh, from, a, from a farm system. Um, it can be maintained if it's looked after um, through you know regular broadcasting as such. Um, and I just think it, it, it's it's a great one-stop solution if if that was what was required. But in saying that back to my previous point, I think multiple options, mitigation options, are the best way to go to have a bigger impact. Yeah, it's it's there's not going to be one silver bullet, is there? No. Um, and so we we really do need to have a, a number of different options in the tool belt. Um, Lee, I agree with Steve. Steve summarised it quite nicely. I mean, regarding mitigations, there is no single silver bullet. Uh, in terms of stacked mitigations, and when we use the terminology stack mitigations, that's identifying that there is probably a hierarchy in terms of implementation, in terms of cost and efficiency uh, trade-off and, and how that affects profit, profitability of a farm. Uh, in terms of the stack mitigations, um, efficient irrigation and reduction of nitrogen fertilizer inputs are the two that stand out as a no impact on profitability and pretty much the uh, the easiest rung on the ladder. Mark? Yeah, no, um, probably two groups to be female. Um, the uh, supplement crop balancing because it's free. Um, so the intake of animals, making sure that's balanced. We're still, if we're still buying supplements, let's just buy the right ones that minimise the amount of nitrogen going out in your own pieces. Um, uh, testing to understand our nutrient pools. Um, doesn't matter which nutrient we're talking about, but understanding what we've got available before we start throwing product willy-nilly. Um, generally, we find we more than pay for the testing uh, in reduced input of, of products. Um, and then zonal management of irrigation and the capture of the rainfall. Again, all three things that we can have a really good outcome with and don't have to invest anything at all. Um, and then the second step is absolutely, as Steve pointed out, go and grab plantain off the shelf. Um, not the not the hardest thing to manage, I should say. There are some really good developing tools and techniques around establishment and maintenance of them there. Um, I just don't want to try. It isn't a good enough excuse for me. It's it's really easy to run. And then um, catch crops were, were really trendy um, and they're still really effective. The challenge is now that the cost of the establishment of the catch crops is starting to get out of balance with what we get out of them and it's cheaper to buy a supplement in, in many instances. So I'd, I'd still be reaching for that tool because it's an easy tool to reach for. Um, 
but it's just not as economic as it was and uh, not everybody's flavour of the month, but fodder beet, fodder beet, fodder beet for wintering. We reduced the amount of area that we need for it. So overall, from a, um, a whole farm system perspective, perspective, we drop our leaching considerably just by using that one crop. As far as the edge of field mitigations go, I do want to take the opportunity to talk about those, especially while you're on the on the um, phone, Lee. The important thing for me to state at the start of this is that the edge of field mitigations aren't ever going to be a substitute for improving our farm practices. You know, we are going to need to improve our farm practices and reduce our leaching on farm. The the edge of field mitigations are an and. They're another thing in our tool belt to, to help along the journey, but by no means do they they stop the need for us to do things on farm. But but Lee, um, when we're talking about the, the wetlands and bioreactors, did you want to just briefly talk about how they can be incorporated um, in a catchment solution? Wetlands and wood chip denitrifying bioreactors are two edge of field nitrogen mitigation measures that are often talked about in advanced mitigation. Uh, con- wetlands are an obvious yep. concept. They are a natural concept. Um, the possibilities there with on, on the plains are quite limited. Obviously, it's, you need water on your farm to intercept and treat, in which case it's only at the bottom of the catchment or the top of the catchment where you've got shallow emergent groundwater, or, uh, which will be contain nitrogen, where you could actually implement something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, for a wetland or a bioreactor, you need water, you need to intercept water with nitrate in it. Yeah. Across the centre of the plains, central plains, there is no point in putting a wetland or a bioreactor on irrigation water. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. There's no nitrogen there to treat. Um, wood chip denitrifying bioreactors are very much at the top end of um, advanced mitigations in terms of cost. Uh, they are very effective if when they're working, but um, trying to find the right site at which you can implement them is challenging. Um, a wood chip bioreactor works on the basis that there is some organic medium within the bioreactor. Normally it's wood chip. That provides a carbon food source for bacteria, and those bacteria essentially breathe out, they breathe nitrate in lieu of oxygen, and they emit nitrogen, dinitrogen gas. Um, Edge of field mitigations are not a scalable solution by any means, um, particularly in Canterbury where our soils are very leaky with regards to nitrogen. The um, bioreactors are very much still a an emerging research and development option. They're, they're not really an option in Canterbury. They're not pragmatic at the moment. There are too many resource consenting issues around them, but they are effective at nitrogen removal. And farmer um, can do on the land is a lot more important of what he can do around the edges of the farm and the peripheries, intercepting the water that's already leached from the land. It's it's very well recognised that the further you get away from your critical source area the more expensive it is to remediate water. Uh, Edge of field mitigation measures are the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff in that regard, and a very expensive solution to Canterbury's water quality problems. Absolutely. When we're treating the the nitrate at the edge of field, you know, we've already paid for that nitrate to be applied, um, and then we're paying to to take it out as well. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It, It just amplifies the cost. Yeah. There's certainly places at the in the Hines area around what used to be a swamp um, where the land might be more 
more suited towards wetlands or constructed wetlands because it, it's able to uh, hold the water up. It's not as leaky and um, naturally was a swamp anyway. So the idea of putting a wetland on some very low productive land anyway with regards to its um, farming value uh, is pretty much the uh, the place to be looking to implement something like that. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, guys. Is there anything that any comments that you would like to leave? Like if, if someone's listening today, what would be a couple of things that you'd like them to take away? Probably lots of things, Mel, um, to take away. But I think the, the key thing for, for me is, is understand your, your farm production system. Um, have a look at the options you've got or know your risk areas. Uh, create a plan. Um, Utilise the, the knowledge and, and wealth of knowledge that's out there. Uh, to be able to support, you know, to be able to address, I suppose, some of the, the risky times of the year um, around with what you're doing on farm. And I think it's the, I think that's probably the key way to do to do things to try and reduce the, the loss of the system. And just think from, a, I suppose, with a on-farm perspective, hey, what what's the environmental, what's the potential environmental impact for me making this decision or doing this particular task or growing this particular crop? And and, and thinking about that from that environmental lens. Thanks, Steve. Mark? What do I want everybody to do? Look, I just would like farmers to start thinking more and more about the how and the why. And all of this advanced mitigation stuff will naturally be, it will naturally take effect on farms without farmers having to try it if we focus on thinking about how and why the different components of the biophysical system interact. Um, if we don't think about that and we just focus on feed and output we're not gonna we're not gonna get there but if we think critically about the how and the why everything will fall into place and there'll be more than the suite of tools that steve and lee and yourself and i have pulled together for this framework that will work and reduce those losses we're wanting to minimize the pool of free pool of nitrogen in the soil and we're wanting to minimise the risk of drainage. Whatever we do, focus on those two things and we'll get advanced mitigation piece of cake. Thanks, Mark. Lee? Uh, Mel, the last uh, part that Mark just suggested in terms of managing the pool of nitrogen within the soil and reducing the drainage through the soil to that is essentially the end loss, without doubt that is the most important thing in my mind. I'm a Come, as an environmental scientist and a hydrologist, I, th I think of hydrology, obviously, but I'm not expecting farmers to become hydrologists. But fundamental thinking is the nitrate problem is related to N inputs and water. Hydrology is a very, very soluble mm -hmm. uh, nutrient and um, limiting leakage through our soils through efficient irrigation is, is paramount to reducing those N losses. There is always going to be a component of surplus N and leaking through the soil due to natural phenomenon, i.e. rainfall mm -hmm. and snowfall events. The more we can do, or the farmer can do to reduce the losses during the productive period and the, the growing period, then that was my two cents worth. So to that point, Lee, if you can think of it a bit like a, a bucket with holes in it, you know, it's about plugging some of those holes at certain times of the year and those holes may be bigger 
at certain times of the year based on rainfall events and stuff like that. So this advanced mitigation is having that view that, you know, we're not going to stop this completely, but we can reduce the amount of leakiness through good practice on farm or advanced mitigation practices, right? That's right. There is an unmanageable component to nitrogen pollution uh, being the climate. We can't expect farmers to manage the when it rains, but they can certainly manage when they irrigate and when they've put that nitrogen on the, the ground. Steve Vex, Mark Everest, Lee Burberry, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's my... Um, I, I suppose I'm I'm really fortunate to have had these conversations with you guys. I really enjoy the discussion. Uh, I learn something new each time we speak and, um, and having the opportunity to share these discussions more broadly is a great opportunity for us. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.